That piece of music you have just heard has a title. It's called Eleanor Rigby, a Lennon-McCartney song. And here we have a spoiler alert. What you have just heard was performed not by the Beatles, but by Stroll Down Penny Lane. And that is just what you are in for, a Stroll Down Penny Lane. And this is Joe Anastasi of the Pantheon Podcast Network your narrator for our exploration back through time. In fact, covering some 65 years of music, where we celebrate the life and music of Paul McCartney. Okay, here we go. Let's investigate this song of Paul's. Eleanor Rigby picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been. Today, we explore three aspects of this song. First up will be the creation myth surrounding the origin of Eleanor Rigby, the central character in this song. Second, we discover the group effort amongst Paul, John, George, and Ringo, and Pete Shotton that was involved in conceiving the song's lyrics. Lastly, the third thread of our narrative today will include an examination of the structure of the song, and some of the recording aspects in the Abbey Road studio that contributed to the unique character of the soundscape of this song, including a surprise about what isn't in this song. So let us begin at the very beginning. When Paul had first come up with the idea for this song, he had the melody pretty well developed. But that was all. As far as creation myths go, the creation myths about this song are pretty interesting. To unearth this, let's investigate the creative process with respect to this song. Let's go back in time to the very moment when this song was created. And for this, we will require the services of our little time machine. So we hit the button, and off we go. Okay, we are now in the year 1966, April 1966 to be precise, and our little time machine has taken us to a particular house in London. We have arrived at the home of Jane Asher, who was then Paul McCartney's girlfriend. Why this home? Why the family residence of Jane Asher? Well, because this is how we arrive at the moment of creation of this song, Eleanor Rigby. Here is how this narrative unfolds. It's 1966, and at that time, Paul was living in London. John, George, and Ringo had recently bought homes in the suburbs just outside London. But Paul had wanted to live in the city, so after a bit of searching, he bought a home on Cavendish Avenue, a short walk from the Abbey Road Studios. But there was a hang-up. The contractor Paul had hired to do some construction renovations was behind schedule. Don't we all know how that story goes? But I digress. And so, while waiting for the carpenters to finish the job, Paul had taken up living in a loft bedroom in the upper story of the Asher home. To fill out this picture a little, Jane Asher's mother, Margaret Asher, was a professor of oboe at the Guildhall School of Music. And as an interesting side note to our little story, she had been George Martin's oboe instructor at the Guildhall. But I digress again. So, important to our story today, Jane Asher's mother, Margaret Asher, also gave oboe lessons. 
She taught in a little studio on the lower floor of the Asher family residence. In fact, one of the assignments she had her students learn was an oboe arrangement of Paul's song, Yesterday. Yesterday All my troubles seem so far away Now it looks as though they're here to stay Joe, an oboe arrangement. She was an oboe teacher. Okay. That's better, but somehow your voice has changed. How does this sound to you now? Is this sounding any better? Yes, that's better. We got things under control. Now, where were we? We finished with our oboe lesson. You were talking about the Asher family residence. Right. We were at the Asher family residence in 1966. So while Paul had been living there, Jane Asher's mother had persuaded Paul to take piano lessons, and she arranged for an instructor from the Guildhall School to come by the house to tutor Paul. While waiting for the piano teacher to arrive one day, Paul wandered down to the lower-level studio in the house, where Margaret gave her lessons, and he began messing around on the piano that was there. As he got himself comfortable on the piano bench, Paul played an E minor chord. Paul then began vamping on the piano, adding some gibberish for the lyrics as he went. As Paul sat there doodling, creating this melody on the piano, his piano teacher happened to arrive at the doorway to the room. The Guildhall piano instructor stood there silently as he listened to what Paul was playing. And Paul explained he was working on this new tune, and he asked the piano teacher if he'd like to hear a bit of it. The teacher responded, Certainly. Paul began to improvise a little as he devised the melody to go along with his E minor chord. Paul looked up at the teacher inquisitively. What do you think, Paul asked. The teacher provided Paul with his assessment of the song. The time jumps are crude and the melody is naive. What are your plans for it? Paul responded that it was just something he was working on. But in his mind, Paul resolved that he would never take another lesson from this man, or from anyone for that matter. Okay, let's explore further the development of this song, Eleanor Rigby, for there are many witnesses to its creation. This is exactly where we left off at the end of our previous podcast. For at this stage, in the writing of this song, Eleanor Rigby, Paul still hadn't discovered who the protagonist of this song was going to be. In other words, Paul didn't even have a name for the main character in this song. So he improvised when he sang the tune to himself. In fact, in our previous podcast, I recounted how the pop singer Donovan Leach they call me mellow, yellow. had recalled Paul having played the first verse just like this. Blowing his mind in the dark with a pipe full of clay. 
no one can say. And how others observed that later, Paul would fiddle some more with the lyrics to this first verse. They recall him having come up with this. Now, Paul has said that it was on a holiday as he walked down a main street in Bristol, England, that he had seen a sign for a wine and spirits shop, Rigby and Evans LTD, Wine and Spirit Shippers. And Paul says that he thought to himself, Rigby, two syllables, that'll do nicely for the last name. Then he said that he thought the first name, Eleanor, would fit pretty well because it had the necessary three syllables. And Eleanor was the first name of the actress Eleanor Braun, who was cast in A Hard Day's Night, the Beatles' first movie. So now, according to how Paul tells the story, he now had his protagonist, Eleanor Rigby. And in his mind's eye, she was a spinster. Eleanor Rigby picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been. Lives in a dream. Now this is Paul's explanation, but there is a counter-narrative. Why do I use this word, counter-narrative? Well, there are two reasons, really. The first is that Paul McCartney has gone on record about how he discovered the main character in this song, the spinster Eleanor Rigby, who died in a church and was buried with her name. So, if we are going to counter what Paul McCartney has said, we better have a pretty sound basis for even attempting this. Which leads us to the second reason for using this word, counter-narrative. And that is that in our story today, we will see without a doubt, and that even Paul concedes that there exists more than ample evidence supporting a completely different creation story. And to discover this, we need to visit a certain graveyard of all things. This is because if you visit a churchyard located in the village of Woolton, just outside Liverpool, where Paul had first been introduced to John, you, dear listener, will find a different answer. Simply walk by the little graveyard next to the church proper, and there you will find some clues. Let me set the table first. John Lennon, as a teenager, lived just a block or two away from this church in Woolton. The graveyard next to the church there is tiny as graveyards go. It is just a postage stamp. You could throw a baseball clear from one end of the graveyard to the other. Now, I haven't counted them exactly, but as I recall, there can't be more than a hundred graves in this little churchyard. And just five paces in from one end of the graveyard, clearly visible to any visitor, including John and Paul, is the particular gravestone for one Eleanor Rigby who died in a church and was buried with her name. For you see, our Eleanor Rigby in this part of our story had been a happily married woman. Why is that remarkable? Number one, despite the fact that this Eleanor Rigby was married and number two, despite the fact that her gravestone identifies her husband by name, that is Thomas Woods, 
Notwithstanding this, the name chiseled onto this grave marker for her was Eleanor Rigby, number three. So despite all the foregoing, from this you see that our Eleanor Rigby was buried with her name and not her husband's name. Eleanor Rigby died in the church and was buried along with her name. Nobody came. But here we pause for the decision. For now, it is up to you to decide which one of the two creation myths is the better fitting story. It is up to you to consider whether Paul found his protagonist, Eleanor Rigby, who had died and had been buried with her name, based on a gravestone that he had encountered in the tiny postage stamp sized cemetery in the churchyard where he had first met John Lennon at the village fete or whether he had come upon it while walking down a street in Bristol, where Paul says he noticed the name of a wine shop, Rigby and Sons. But wait, before you rush to judgment, I have further proof for you to consider. During their teenage years, Paul McCartney and John Lennon had spent time sunbathing there in that little postage stamp of a churchyard in Walton, just where the two of them had first met during a church fete in 1957. In fact, John Lennon's childhood experience with this little churchyard cemetery was very personal. The reason for this is that John's uncle had died in 1955, just two years before John and Paul had been introduced. John's uncle's name was George Toogood Smith. John, being John and the childish prankster he was at the time, had loved the sound of this name, Toogood. So good old John would drag his friends into this graveyard to show them the name on the gravestone so he could pronounce this name with gusto as George Toogood Smith. Why am I telling you this? Well, it establishes one of many connections to this Eleanor Rigby gravestone. Many years after this, Paul McCartney would concede that the existence of this grave of Eleanor Rigby and the happenstance that the protagonist of his song was named Eleanor Rigby may very well be a product of his subconscious. Hold on! Subconscious? What exactly does Paul mean by that? What is meant by this word, subconscious? Paul is referring to an actual medical phenomena. It is known as cryptomnesia. You can Google this word and you will find that Webster's Dictionary indicates that it is pronounced just this way. Cryptomnesia. But what does it mean, this cryptomnesia thing? Well, the American Psychological Association states that it represents an implicit memory phenomena in which people mistakenly believe that a current thought or idea is a product of their own creation when in fact they have encountered it previously and then forgotten it. So for Paul McCartney and Eleanor Rigby, is this a case of cryptomnesia? Well, our investigation is not quite finished. Consider this also. Annie Mawson is the director of a charity which is called the Sunbeams Music Trust. This private agency provides what they refer to as community music. 
It is music therapy to help children and adults with a wide range of disabilities. But why are we talking about this nonprofit located in Cumbria, the most northwestern county in England, bordering on Scotland? Stay with me for a moment and we'll connect this nonprofit to Eleanor Rigby and Paul McCartney. Some 30 years ago, Annie Mawson wrote a letter to Paul McCartney. It was an emotional 11-page letter. She described her charity and the spectacular results she had seen with the disabled children and adults, for that matter, emotionally connecting to Paul's songs. About nine months later, Annie Mawson received the letter in the mail. It was a response from Paul McCartney. She described it this way. The envelope was exciting because it was a brown envelope stamped with his Paul McCartney World Tour logo, uh, unique to him. So I was very intrigued because I knew it had to come from him. And inside the envelope was a beautiful ancient parchment from 1911 from a hospital in Liverpool. And on the document, there were three stamps. I saw it was a roll call of names, and they'd all received their wages. And one of them was a scullery maid called E. Rigby, and she'd received £1, 3 and 11 pence, and then she'd signed for her money. Annie Mawson believes that this document is proof positive that there was, in fact, a real Eleanor Rigby who inspired Paul's song. Let's sum up. Let's discuss the journal entry found in this pay register that Annie Mawson received. We are talking about the very same Eleanor Rigby, a person who existed, whose name was carved on that gravestone in that posted stamp size cemetery next to that church in Woolton. We are talking about the same Eleanor Rigby that was physically depicted in that journal entry in that pay register. A pay register representing additional documentation that an actual Eleanor Rigby existed in Liverpool. And finally, let's talk about this pay register, which represents a document that had been sent to Annie Mawson by... Paul McCartney, I rest my case. So here we pause for the decision. For you to decide whether Paul found his protagonist, Eleanor Rigby, who had died and had been buried with her name, based on a gravestone that he had encountered in the tiny posted stamp cemetery in the churchyard where he had first met John at the village fete or whether it was walking down a street in Bristol where Paul says he noticed the name of a wine shop, Rigby and Sons. But hold on! Why? Because as humans, we have found creation stories to be fascinating, and this is across all cultures and across the ages. So no wonder the story of the creation of Eleanor Rigby fascinates us. And there is no reason to prove or disprove this creation story, for even the lyrics tell us, All the lonely people, where do they all come from? Nobody knows, 
Hey, Joe, that's not the way the lyrics go. And you've jumbled the bridge of the song with the last line of the verse. Okay, Mr. TBM, then try this one on for size. All the lonely people, where do they all come from? Even Paul doesn't know. Cryptomnesia. See what I mean? There is even science behind this. Okay, but let's not leave this churchyard in Woolton just outside Liverpool. Not just yet, because we have yet another connection to make to this churchyard in Woolton and Paul and John and this song, Eleanor Rigby. With our little time machine, we have zoomed to the year 1957. And we land in Liverpool where the biggest thrill for teenagers that year was a film called The Girl Can't Help It. Important to our story thread is that this film introduced two instant rock and roll classics. The first was Bee Bopalula by Gene Vincent. The second was 20 Flight Rock by Eddie Cochran. So let's connect this little narrative to Paul McCartney. When this film arrived in Liverpool, 15-year-old Paul McCartney and his buddy Ian James were some of the first in line to see it. After the film was over, the two teenagers rushed off to the music store, NEMS, and they bought the single, 20 Flight Rock. With the single in hand, they went to Ian's house and played it over and over and over again, until Paul figured out that the guitar chords went just like this. Ian James recalls that Paul, studious as he was, then deciphered and wrote down the words to the song. And after a couple of run-throughs, Ian James recalled that Paul was Eddie Cochran. Why do I relate this story? Well, the answer is twofold. Because A, this song is important to the actual formation of the Beatles. And B, the film in which this song appeared is important to the formation of the song Eleanor Rigby, perhaps. So let's first turn to the song 20 Flight Rock and the formation of the Beatles. With our little time machine, we have zoomed ahead a couple of months to July 6, 1957. Because on this day, the Quarrymen, John Lennon's teenage rock and roll group, had a gig. It was at a church fete just outside Liverpool in Woolton, where John lived. We know this church, for we've been to the little graveyard next to this church in this story already. But on this day, July 6, 1957, John Lennon auditioned a possible new member of the band, 15-year-old Paul McCartney. The audition transpired during a break after the quarrymen's first set at this church fete and the song Paul performed on guitar to seal the deal was Eddie Cochran's 20 Flight Rock from the 1957 film The Girl Can't Help It. Oh, well, I got a girl with a record machine When it comes to rocking, she's a queen Went to a dance on a Saturday night All alone where I could hold her tight 
She lives on the 20th floor uptown. The elevator's broken down. But I walk one, two, flight, three, flight, four, five, six, seven, five, flight more. Up on 12, I'm starting to sag. 15 before I'm ready to drive. I get to the top, and I'm too tired to rock. And after performing this song for John Lennon, from this point forward, Paul McCartney was part of John's group, The Quarrymen. We'll be right back after this short break, so stay with us. And he laid us in my ears. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And meanwhile, We're back now with the Pantheon Podcast Network, and this is Joe Anastasi of Stroll Down Penny Lane, your narrator for our exploration of the life and music of Paul McCartney. So let's pick up where we just left off. All right, we have made the connection to this churchyard in Walton, where John had first been introduced to Paul. That's important because this is the churchyard where the grave of Eleanor Rigby is found. But there was another massive hit song in this 1957 film, The Girl Can't Help It. And with this other song, we find a second possible connection to Paul's song, Eleanor Rigby. So stay with me, and I will establish a foundation. All the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? One of the great songwriting aspects of the song Eleanor Rigby is found in the bridge, which we just heard. For here, Paul and George Martin provide for a sense of inevitability as the stringed instrument slowly descends four semitones. It is what is called a chromatic descent, and the descent is finished when the instrument lands on the fifth degree of the underlying E minor chord. Now, this chromatic descent of four semitones is the mirror image of a chromatic ascent in this other song, which we will next examine. Stated another way, in this second song we are interested in, these same four notes are ascending from the lowest note to the highest. What's the connection? You decide. Here, we need our time machine. We'll press the button and go further back in time to the year 1955. In fact, if you are of a certain age, you may recall this next song. familiar? Aerosmith covered that song. Yes, they did. 
1982, as a matter of fact. But let's focus on the original version of this song, for in her original version of this song in 1955, Julie London invented a new genre, Revenge Torch, paving the way for Taylor Swift, who would build a career out of this genre. Now enough of the revenge torch of Taylor Swift. Let's go back to Julie London's Cry Me a River. Paul McCartney would have known this song, Cry Me a River. How do we know this? Well, let me lay out the evidence. Here we need our time machine. Fast forward from 1955 to 1957. This song, Cry Me a River, was prominently featured in that 1957 movie, The Girl Can't Help It. And we already know that Paul McCartney was a big fan of that film. So now, how are we going to connect this Revenge Torch song, Cry Me a River, to Paul's song, Eleanor Rigby? Okay, there are a number of dots to connect. Four dots, to be precise. Here is the first dot. The verse of the song, Cry Me a River, uses the very same chord that is featured in the chorus of Paul's Eleanor Rigby. It's an E minor chord. The fact that the chord is a minor chord imparts the feeling of sadness to both songs. Okay, here is the second dot to connect. We can forensically examine the other ways that these two songs relate to one another. And for this second dot, when we listen to this next song fragment, notice that in addition to the sad chord both songs have in common, both songs also use the word lonely. Stay with me now. These are just the dots that we are connecting one at a time. The third dot to connect is that both songs feature the four semitone chromatic run that we analyzed just a moment ago. One song going down these four notes and the other going up these same four notes. How is that a connection? One line is going down four notes and the other is going up four notes. Up, down, same difference. It's the same four notes and they are being played over the same E minor chord. It's tenuous. You mean like... No, not like that. Okay, then you mean like... He said it's tenuous, tenuous, don't you know? That he said it's true does not mean that it's so. He said it's tenuous, tenuous. No, not like that. Like this. Tenuous, then in substance or consistency, insubstantial. Now you, Talkback Mike, of all people, are challenging the quality of the connection that I, your poor narrator, have identified. The connection is that we've got the same four notes going up from one direction and going down from the other direction. It's all subjective, you know? Subjective. Based on or influenced by personal feelings, tastes, or opinions. Everything in the creative arts is subjective, you know? 
So fourth, let me continue. The fourth dot to connect is, well, let's listen to the following song fragment that I, your humble narrator, have devised. Let's hear how the one song nestles or fits within the other. Interesting, right? Okay, we will leave Crimea River and focus now only on Eleanor Rigby. Let's recap what we've covered so far. Recaps are good. Good. We are in agreement. So our recapitulation is this. We've explored the creation myths surrounding this song, and in this exploration, we've discovered that Paul has hedged a little bit here on his explanation. Hedged? You mean like a foreign exchange hedge? He's hedged his bet? No, I mean hedged, like this. Hedge. A non-committal or intentionally ambiguous statement. What I mean is that Paul's explanation initially was that he came up with his protagonist's name, Eleanor Rigby, after seeing a sign for a wine and spirit shop, Rigby and Sons. Now this is where we get to where Paul hedged a little, and it explains how we get into this counter-narrative aspect of our story. And his hedge was this. Later, when told about the existence of a grave of an actual Eleanor Rigby in the churchyard where he had first met John Lennon, Paul has offered that perhaps, just perhaps, in the writing of this song, he may have had some kind of subconscious recollection of the name found on this gravestone. And here, our Paul happens to be referring to an actual psychological phenomena. Cryptomnesia. And then we covered all the evidence linking Paul to this churchyard where the grave of Eleanor Rigby is found. For example, where the evidence includes him performing 20 Flight Rock when he had auditioned as a 15-year-old for John Lennon's group, The Quarrymen, in the same churchyard where this grave is found. Well, I walk one, two, flat, three, flat, four, five, six, seven, five, flat, more. Up on 12, I'm starting to sag, 15 before I'm ready to drive. And our case in point was that Paul had learned that specific song from watching the movie The Girl Can't Help It. And we discovered another thing. Which was? Which was that that movie coincidentally featured the song Cry Me a River which we discovered shares several elements with the structure of the song Eleanor Rigby. To cap things off, we also unearthed the fact that Annie Mawson had written a letter to Paul describing to him how his music provided profound music therapy to children having a wide range of disabilities, and how Paul had actually responded to her by sending to Annie, of all things, the pay register that confirmed the existence of an actual Eleanor Rigby in Liverpool. So, with all of the foregoing, we have fully explored the creation myth surrounding Paul's protagonist, Eleanor Rigby. We can think of this as the first thread of our narrative in our story today. How many threads do you have in mind? 
Glad you asked. There are three threads in our narrative today. So let's move on to the second thread in our story. Let's explore how the rest of this song was constructed. As we have seen through a kind of laborious effort, Paul had completed the first verse. It was a good start. Eleanor Rigby was a spinster, living a kind of lonely life. Now the question was, where to go next with the song? The next verse took shape at John Lennon's house in Weybridge, just outside London. There one day in 1966, the four Beatles situated themselves in John's music room. Also, John Lennon had invited one of his school chums, Pete Shotton, to join the lads that day. So imagine this in your mind's eye, the four Beatles and Pete Shotton sitting in John's music room, and as they sat there, they listened as Paul sang and played what he had so far for his song, the first verse. Eleanor Rigby picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been. Lives in a dream. With this, everyone proceeded to kick around different ideas for where the song could go next. Paul's idea was for the next verse to be about a priest, and Paul had come up with the name Father McCartney. The way Paul saw it, this Father McCartney was to be a depressed, ancient character. Father McCartney, writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear. Pete Shotton persuaded Paul that maybe, just maybe, it wouldn't be such a great idea of naming this priest as Father McCartney. You got a bad idea. You got a bad idea. The others in the room seized on this, and to find a resolution, they began flipping through the pages of a telephone directory laying there in the room. After a bit of back and forth, the group settled on the name Mackenzie. Father Mackenzie. Ringo, taken with the flow of the proceedings so far, volunteered that he believed that this Father Mackenzie would be frugal, the type who would personally darn the holes in his own socks. Paul reflected on this input and came up with Father Mackenzie, writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear. No one comes near, look at him working, donning his socks in the night when there's nobody there. What does he care? Now they needed to figure out a bridge section for the song. The lads always referred to this as a middle eight. Regardless of whether or not the bridge section of the song comprised eight or ten or even twelve bars of music, to them it was just a distinguishing section of the song, something different than the verses. George Harrison expressed his belief that the song was about all the lonely people. Consequently, this became the foundation for the bridge of this song. All the lonely people. So with George's broader suggestion about lonely people, the song no longer became simply about Eleanor Rigby, a spinster, or even Father Mackenzie, a frugal elderly priest. It became more than that. It became about all of the lonely people who were living lonely, neglected lives. The outcome of this was that this song became a lament, one that would describe for many their lives in post-war Britain. George's suggestion would transform this song. It would broaden it 
so that it would resonate with more people. Thus, the song was able to reach well beyond the teenage followers of this emerging rock and roll phenomenon. So Paul now had the concept for the first two verses, with the first verse vividly sketching the spinster Eleanor Rigby. Then, with a few deft strokes in the second verse, he had outlined the priest, Father Mackenzie. And now he had the middle eight about all the lonely people. But how to end the song? It was Pete Shotton who again provided the nudge that would move the song's progress in an important direction. Pete Shotton suggested, Why not have these two lonely people come together, but have this happen too late? Meaning, have this Father Mackenzie preside over the burial of Eleanor Rigby. John Lennon immediately rejected this idea. But as it was, Paul said nothing as he cogitated on this suggestion. Later, after he had left that day, Paul reflected some more on Pete Shotton's idea, and Paul used it in the last verse for this song. Eleanor Rigby died in the church and was buried along with her name. Nobody came, Father Mackenzie, wiping the dirt from his hands as he walks from the grave. No one was saved. Okay, we've covered the creation myth surrounding this song as part of the first thread in our narrative today. And the second thread in our narrative comprised how different individuals contributed to writing of the various sections of the song. So let's move on now to the third thread in our narrative today, which is the actual structure of the song and some of the aspects of the recording process at the Abbey Road studio. The string arrangement in Eleanor Rigby is a distinguishing element of this song, and it is a perfect example of how successful songs often possess some kind of a hook, something listeners can easily recognize as a signature element of a song. Here, the uncanny thing is that the Beatles were continuing with a tradition that they established earlier with the song Yesterday. And here, with Eleanor Rigby, Paul and George Martin struck gold again, creating a haunting counter-melody using stringed instruments. John Lennon provided some insight about how this came about. He said, The violin backing was Paul's idea. Jane Asher had turned him on to Vivaldi, and it was very good. This time around, though, George Martin scored the arrangement for four violins, two cellos, and two violas. Most of the instrument parts were doubled. Stated another way, this doubling meant that the two instruments each played the same part. The effect of this was to fatten the sound. To produce an even more intense sound, the stringed instruments were close-miked. Another innovation. Because in the studio, when you place a microphone close to the source being recorded, in the recording process, the lower or bass frequencies become accentuated. Jeff Emmerich, the recording engineer for the session, described what he was attempting to achieve. No one had heard strings recorded that way before. The sound of the bow on the string. That was the first time I started miking the strings real close. Usually the mics were placed farther away from the players. That was the normal technique. So let's set the scene. Here we can see the eight orchestral musicians seated in Studio 3. And in our mind's eye, we can see that they are eyeing the recording engineer as he moved from one seated musician to the next, placing each mic in turn. 
Jeff Emmerich described his work process for that session. What I did was I placed these small condenser mics right up near the F-holes of the instruments. The musicians were horrified because they knew that any mistake would be heard. If they weren't playing as well as the musician next to them, they were going to be found out. Jeff Emmerich recounts the amusing human reaction to what he was attempting to achieve. So, what would happen is that the musicians would begin to gradually move their chairs away from the mic. I used to see it, though, and would come back and gradually push the mics back in. Then, when all was ready, Paul and George Martin proceeded with a recording session. The string arrangement devised by George Martin and Paul is ear-catching. It provides a hook, one that instantly draws the listener in. And here it is, where the cello voice is provided by an electric cello. Another distinguishing element of this song is the vocal leap you find in the bridge. The leap is an ambitious 15 semitone jump, and it occurs just on the line, Where do they all belong? It establishes a record for any Beatles song. All the lonely people, where do they all belong? Paul was almost finished now with a song, and in the studio at Abbey Road, he worked with George Martin on the song's outro. In popular music, the term outro refers to the concluding section of a piece of music. George Martin recognized that an opportunity was presenting itself, and to explain his idea to Paul, he suggested to Paul that they listen to the two vocal parts that occurred in different sections of the bridge of the song. The first vocal part was this. All the lonely people. Then Paul and George Martin took a listen to the second vocal line that George Martin had in mind. Look at all the lonely people. George Martin explained to Paul that the two vocal parts could work together contrapuntally, meaning that the two lines could be sung in counterpoint, where two melodic lines are played at the same time. George Martin has stated that he came up with the idea of the two vocal lines working together contrapuntally from Bernard Herrmann's unique string score in the soundtrack to the movie Psycho. Of all things. Eleanor Rigby was not the first pop song to deal with the elderly or death and loneliness. However, the song rose to number one on the charts in 1966, even with its bleak, almost funeral aspects. With Eleanor Rigby, the Beatles had discarded popular music traditions, both musically and lyrically, and with this song, the Beatles continued with their transformation. And with that, I think we have now covered all there is to cover about this song. Hey, Joe, you haven't completely covered the possibilities in the third thread of your narrative. The third thread is the structure of the song and some of the aspects of the recording of the song at Abbey Road. We have explored those. What about covering what is absent in this song? 
What is absent is pretty remarkable. Ah, TBM, you are right. Why don't you go for it? You seem to be on top of things. Well, you did not mention that the Beatles, the rock and roll phenomenon and highly influential band, did not play any typical rock and roll instruments. Like bass guitar, electric guitar, or any kind of guitar, piano, or any type of keyboard, drum set, tambourine, or hand claps on the song Eleanor Rigby. The Beatles did not play any of the instruments on this recording. Thank you for that talkback, Mike. And now, back to the subject at hand. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Eleanor Rigby. Picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been Lives in a dream, waits at the window Wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door Who is it for? All the lonely people Where do they all come from? All the lonely people Where do they all belong? Father Mackenzie, writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear. No one comes near, look at him working, darning his socks in the night when there's nobody there. What does he care? All the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do belong in the church and was buried along with her name nobody came father mackenzie wiping the dirt from his hands as he walks from the grave no one was saved all the lonely people where do they all come from all the lonely people where do they all belong I hope you enjoyed this podcast of Stroll Down Penny Lane, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Please join us again next time as we explore further the life and music of Paul McCartney. And if you are in the neighborhood, come see us at one of our shows. You'll find us at strolldownpennylane.com. Hey.